I think all of us understand the power of contrasts. In other words, when you compare one thing with another, it often is a powerful way to show the value of this thing over that thing. You with me? For instance, here's what I mean. If I were with some, some of our college students, they were all at 8.30 sitting right in here. There may be some still here, of course, in the service, but there were a, a whole wolf pack of them in this area. If I were to show them the value of investing over saving, I could do this. I could say, give me $100 a month. I'll save it for you. At the end of one year, I'll give you back $1,200. You won't miss it. You'll think it's a lot of the moment, but trust me, you'll save it and you'll have $1,200. It'll seem like a gift next December. Or I could say this. Every month, give me that same $100, and I'll give you 10% interest every month you give me $100. At the end of the year, I'll give you back how much? $1,320. There's not a single college student that would say, no, I'll keep the $1,200. I hope there's not a single one of you that would do that, right? You'll take $1,320 over, one, over $1,200 every time, won't you? You should. That's a simple contrast to show the value of one thing over another. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to show you the value that one thing could have in your life in 2023. The value that this one thing has is so great that it could affect every other part of your life. And that one thing is a life rooted in God's Word. And I want to show you this from three contrasts in Psalm chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, open to Psalm 1. And in what I think are three couplets of verses, 1 and 2, 3 and 4, and 5 and 6, the psalmist here really shows us the value of the way of the righteous in contrast to the way of the wicked. And he says that this one way has one key action to it. We're going to see what that is in this psalm. So let's read Psalm 1 together. You'll see the three contrasts jumping out at you. Don't worry, it's not hard to spot. We'll walk through them. I'll spend most of my time this morning in contrast 1 and then in the application. So be aware of that. I'll be pretty brief in 2 and 3, so take quick notes and write fast in that segment for sure. Here's Psalm 1 for us. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, see the contrast kind of transition word there? His delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not weather, and whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. See the contrasting language there? Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord watches over over the way of the righteous, here's a contrasting word, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Six simple verses, I think arranged in three couplets. Let's notice trend, uh, Excuse me. contrast number one. It would be the contrast of soul satisfaction 
versus surface approval. We see this really in verses 1 and 2. I want to draw our attention to several things here. Notice the word happy, first of all. The word happy speaks of deep down contentment, like soul satisfaction. Some translations have the word blessed in there. Equally good, happy, blessed. And sometimes in our culture, we tend to make the word happy seem kind of trivial or like surfacey, like uh, you don't want to be happy, you want to be joyful. Okay, I get the point of that. But the truth is, in the Old Testament, the word happy is a very good word. We should not fear associating happy and blessed. The Old Testament does. In fact, here's how the Old Testament sees the words happy and blessed. They have in mind the picture of this this, um, uh, individual, and usually it's a man who's looking over his life. In the covenant community, under the covenant of God, under a covenant keeping God, and he sees how the Lord has blessed him because of his obedience to the covenant with things like land. Remember, I'm talking Old Testament, God's covenant people, land and children. There's a sense of prosperity. There's a sense of, of legacy. He looks over all of that and he says, man, I'm a blessed man. That's kind of the picture of the word blessed. Or he says, man, I'm deep down satisfied. Are you kind of tracking with me on this? That's the picture of the word happy or blessed. And here he uses that word to describe the one who delights in the Lord's instruction and meditates on it. In other words, the happy, blessed person takes their cue from God's word, not the culture or man's opinion. They don't try to draw approval from what the crowd says. They simply draw their cues from what God says, and they're content with that. Now, the reason I talk about the culture's opinion, the, the, the opinion of man, or the, this idea of you know, the, uh, getting their approval from others is because that really is the sense of verse 1. When he says that, that happiness does not belong to the one, now watch this progression. He walks in the advice of the wicked, stands in the pathway of sinners, and sits in the company of mockers. See the progression of walk stand and sit. Here's what's happening. In the mind of the psalmist, he's picturing this one who's kind of looking for where they belong. Who's going to kind of give thumbs up to my life? Who says, hey, you're good. We like what you're doing. And so he's looking kind of horizontally to find out what the culture says. Where's the wind blowing? And so he kind of walks, surveying the horizontal landscape. He finds those who kind of approve He stands there with them. They like that, so they give more approval, so he sits down. He kind of finds his company. He finds his approval in the horizontal relationships. What I find really interesting is that the word happiness does not apply to that person. In fact, consider this. The psalmist does not tell us what word does describe that person, does he? He just says that they're, they're not happy. They're not blessed. Instead, the blessed one, the happy one, is the one who is vertical, not horizontal. They're not worried about the shifting opinions or or likes or dislikes of who's around them. They're concerned with what the God above them has said. That's why I think really the contrast here is between what brings soul satisfaction and what brings surface approval. Mankind will give you surface approval, but it won't last. God will give you deep down, long-lasting, eternal soul satisfaction. Now, just to remind you, the issue we're looking at here is one of source. 
Say that word with me. Source. What brings happiness? And according to Psalm 1, it's the Lord's instruction. Notice the word delight and the word happy. I'd connect those two. It's in the Lord's word that we delight, that we meditate. It's what brings us blessedness, happiness, contentment, deep down satisfaction. Now, this observation should raise a legitimate, natural question in your mind. I hope some of you are thinking this. Maybe you don't want to admit you're thinking this, but I hope that somewhere in your mind you've thought this or something like it. Why is man's approval never the source for happiness and blessing? Because frankly, Todd, sometimes it feels pretty good. Like when you get a thumbs up, when the culture says, that's cool, that's good, you're in. Actually, Todd, that kind of feels pretty good in the moment. You're telling me that that's not the avenue to real happiness and blessing, but at times I have felt pretty blessed by it. Like, can you explain why the culture's opinion, mankind's opinion, why a horizontal approach is not the source of long-lasting happiness and blessing? Let me see if I can answer that question by illustrating um, something to you from the world of progressive politics and using one of our former presidents, Bill Clinton. I'm not being critical or sarcastic or humorous. I'm trying to be factual about why cultural ver uh, horizontal pursuits don't equal long-lasting happiness, okay? So follow me here. I think you'll catch this easily. In 1992... Our country was told by Bill Clinton, who was, I think, at the time running for president, that abortion should be protected so that those who needed one could access one. But he assured us, and this is the phrase he coined, it would only be safe, legal, and rare. He kept that phrase throughout his presidency, used it, and I think it was pretty much a manipulative tool to garner the support of some moderate conservatives who were, who were maybe straddling the fence of what the Bible really said about abortion and wanted some of the benefits of conservatism but still wanted to kind of be culturally acceptable. Who knows all that's going on there? But it was kind of this tagline, okay, so we're not, it just kind of maybe appeased some people. But guess what? The progressives now say this, abortion for any reason at any stage of pregnancy. Here's my point. That's the same group of people. If Bill Clinton were to stick to his original stance, he'd be disowned and silenced by his own progressive friends. The very folks that he walked around, stood around, and sat with, and they said, you're in. Now they're saying, if he sticks to his original stance, what do they say? You're out. You see, in the cultural horizontal pursuit you may think you're an ally until you disagree, then you realize you're an enemy. You can never know or trust where the culture is going to stay because they're always shifting. That's one example. That's why you can't chase the culture's approval because you can't trust it. It's a futile pursuit. Here's another example. In 1996, and this is a very recent one, uh, in 96, Bill Clinton signed the Defense of Marriage Act. You know it as DOMA. And here's what it did. It protected 
the word marriage in a federal sense. So a same-sex couple could have certain rights and recognition in a state, but they couldn't necessarily exercise that federally. That was the goal of the Defense of Marriage Act. A few weeks ago, those same people and friends of those people passed the Respect for Marriage Act, which is actually the opposite. You know what it did? It says that what states do is now federally recognized regarding same-sex couples. It completely reversed the, ironically, defense of Marriage Act. Catch this, church. The very same progressives who said there was a defense of Marriage Act, it couldn't even stand up to a defense from themselves. Isn't that hilarious in maybe not laughable ways? And here's what I want to say. If Bill Clinton were to maintain his earlier stance on marriage, he again would be silenced, disowned. He'd be put down by his own progressive partners. He would be, in plainest terms, eaten alive by them. Now, here's what I want you to see. Progressive ideology, whether it's theological, political, or cultural, because it leans on and, and, and has to have the culture to survive, it's parasitic in nature. It always eats its own host. You don't believe me? Just ask Bill Clinton, who has to keep shifting further and further from what he once said in order to maintain the approval from his friends. That's why you can't change. You can't, um, you can't find happiness and blessing from a horizontal pursuit only. It's, an, it's, a, it's chasing the wind. It's chasing your tail. So let's get back to the original question. Why is man's approval never the source for real happiness? Here's why. Because when you chase the culture's approval, you're never satisfied by it. You're only eaten by it. It is ultimately parasitic. You see, when you don't agree with the newest non-normal behavior, then suddenly you're not an ally, you're the enemy. And one can never stay current enough when man's opinion or the culture's dogma is our guide. Why? Because there's no anchor point to keep it from the inevitable drift. This is why I say to you, every person, family, church, and civilization needs an anchor point. Why? to avoid cultural cannibalism. That's what you're watching in our culture. You're watching people who once agreed now eat each other up because they can't keep up with how far left everything can just go. What's the next line of morality we're gonna cross? What's the next non-scientific thing? Uh, what's the next scientific thing we're gonna say doesn't exist? You just can't get uh, immoral enough. And if you disagree with it, suddenly you're not in. We don't approve you now. That's, that's, a, that's a, uh, a chasing of the wind that I don't want any part of. Instead, let's go vertical. What does God say? Let's land where he lands. Let's tether ourselves there and let's stay there. That's the anchor point for every church, family, person, and civilization. And that's why I want you to make the word of God a central focus for your life in 2023 to have an anchor point for your life. In fact, just recently, someone asked me about some issues, and they said, Todd, are, are you a conservative? I'm speaking here across the board, theologically, politically. and just They said, are you a conservative? I said, no, not in the sense of a horizontal conservative. I'm a vertical conservative. 
I had not thought of that word till that moment. But I was thinking about all the folks who want to be horizontally conservative because in the moment it makes sense. I don't want to just be conservative in the moment because it makes sense. I want to land where God lands, period. I just want to stay there. So I said to them, I'm a vertical conservative. Wherever God and whatever God says, then that's where I'm going to put my feet. And I'm going to tether my life and tether myself to that. And I want to encourage you to do the same thing. We're trying to figure out what this person thinks or that person thinks or this group thinks, whose approval you will or won't have. Man, that's chasing the wind. Let's see what God says. Let's meditate on his law, his instruction. Let's delight in that. Let's be content. Let's be deeply satisfied to stay right there. So there's a lot more we could say about that, a lot of things we could chase, so to speak. Let me just simply remind you, what we're talking about here is that there is one avenue to soul satisfaction, and it's not horizontal. It's vertical. It's God and His Word. Notice the second contrast with me. Would you all go through these next two somewhat quickly? Just notice them. The second contrast is in verses 3 and 4, and it's really the contrast of vibrancy versus lifelessness. Do you see this in these verses? You could use the word stability versus futility. You could even use the word vitality versus futility. But the metaphor here is of a tree planted by streams, and it's very fruit-bearing. You just kind of picture this, this idyllic scene, don't you? Versus chaff that the wind is just blowing and taking wherever it wants to go. One is a picture of strength, and one is of like weakness. In fact, one is useful, one is useless. Let's be even more blunt. One is alive and one is dead. And if you want the way of the wicked, the way of the scorners, the way of the mockers, that'll be a life that's just like chaff, useless, dead, and just blown around by whatever wind comes. If you want the life of a tree, deeply rooted and with healthy fruit, then meditating on God's Word is the key action. So that's why it's vibrancy versus lifelessness. Now, I want you to notice something interesting about this contrast, that there's a sequence to how this works. It's root, then fruit. Say that with me. Root, then fruit. Do you see the verse? He's planted. That's the first thing mentioned. And then he talks about how he's got fruit in its season, a non-withering leaf, he prospers. And so we must keep the order correct. Roots, then fruit. And often we want to switch those up because we're concerned about our image or our brand or how we look. And so we sacrifice putting down good deep roots for the sake of looking a certain way and that will never last. It's like a really big pie of whipped cream. You stick your finger in it like, man, there's not much there. <laughs> but it looks big, doesn't it? Uh, can I just encourage every mom and dad, young man, young woman, boy and girl in this room, to focus on roots first, fruit second. Say it with me, roots first fruit second. I know sometimes it seems like, man, I'm reading the Bible, I'm all alone, 
no one knows. It seems like this kind of habit that this isn't, like it just seems like this daily grind. Read the Bible, read the Bible. Well, there may be some work there to do on the joy side, but can I say to you, that's probably a very beneficial habit that maybe few people know that you're doing, but will pay great dividends. I shouldn't even say probably. It is a super habit that will pay great dividends in your life. Just daily reading the Bible personally will bear fruit in ways for years to come you cannot even imagine right now. This is such a great principle for people like young dads, young moms who right now you've got a two-month-old or a two-year-old or maybe a four-year-old. and You're in those years when life is like a chaotic tornado in your home and you don't have enough time or money or energy and sometimes you feel like you're just about ready to sin in such an uh, enormous way and, and, and it's just it's hard. Life is very hard. You have multiple kids, young ages and it's like, man, and sometimes you want to kind of vacate that and pursue something that seems easier than staying at the task of disciplining your children, spending time with them and nurturing them. But can I say to you, what you want when they're 20 is being formed when they're two. It's roots, then fruit. And many a dad, especially, has seen their kid when they're 18 and 20 and felt a great distance. And all they're doing is reaping the result of their distance when their kid was two and three and five and six. Can I encourage you young dads, young moms? I know it's difficult, it's laborious. It can seem like, man, will this ever end? But it is well worth it to put roots down with your kids because there's a day coming which the fruit will show up. The same thing is true in our marriage. It's true in our finances. It's true in our investments with our church. It's true in how we serve. It's always roots first. Say it with me. Roots first. Fruit second. Put some roots down. Do the hard, invisible things that actually pay off down the road. When I was a youth pastor, I taught this principle to youth pastors all over Iowa and their youth leaders. I called it the RS effect. R stood for root and S stood for shade. Now you could put the word or the letter F in there, and you can call it the RF effect, root and fruit. But here's the point. And I taught this across our state, and I still believe, I haven't said much about it for 20 years or more, but this is a true principle that has really just helped me personally. That the width of the shade, you can say the health of the fruit, and that's what we all really want, let's be frank. Everyone wants a wide shade, healthy fruit. You kind of want an impact. You'll make a difference. But that, the, root, the width of the shade, is in direct proportion to the depth of the roots. Does that make sense? And I would encourage youth pastors, don't forsake the disciplines of ministry and the non-negotiables that make you who you are with God if you want to see the kind of ministry that actually works long term. So I would say to them, remember, the width of your shade is directly affected by in proportion to the depth of your roots. And can I say to you, our church, the width of your shade, the health of your fruit is in direct proportion to the depth of your roots. Hey, church, Put some roots down this year by diving into God's word and meditating and delighting on this day and night. Look at contrast number three. It's one of security versus destruction. 
These are pretty stark words, aren't they? But notice this is uh, how the psalmist speaks. He uses stark language. Look what he says, that the wicked will not stand up. So if they're not standing up, what are they doing? They're falling down. That's a metaphor, a picture of destruction, of ruin. He says later that the Lord watches over the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. So there's the word itself. And so here the psalmist is kind of contrasting security versus destruction. Now I want you to think about this contrast with four words. That's these four words. What believers have, the way of the righteous, we experience protection because of relationship. All right? Protection or security because of relationship. And I find this from verse 6, the beginning. Do you see it? For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. Man, is your heart now just settled a little bit? With all the unknowns, all the things that cause anxiety, here's some great news. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous. Amen, church. Now, do you see what's happening here? He's promising, watch this, that the fruitfulness of the blessed man is due to the faithfulness of our blessed God. Because there's a legitimate question that arises also as we read through this psalm. Okay, if I plant myself in God's word and I aim for being a tree and not chaff, how can I be sure that at the end of everything, it's all gonna be worth it? Here's the answer. Because of God's faithfulness, he's watching over the righteous. Yes, that's right. He watches over our way. He assures us that the end result of a word-centered life is a worthwhile life. That reward that we receive at the end, I believe in this passage, the implied uh, reward is that we have a relationship with our Redeemer that's visibly and fully realized. You see, hearing that, it drives me to kind of show you one other thing about these three contrasts. They not only work individually, like here's contrast one, contrast two, contrast three. I think they work in sequence to show you kind of how life works. It's really a, a psalm that kind of shows you two ways to go. The way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. And in sequence, here's the way of the righteous. Let me show you this. These are the same contrast. Notice how they work, if you were to say, in tandem. There's a beginning contrast. You could say the beginning of your life, so to speak, when you have to ask yourself, where do I start? What's the one thing I should do? How should I approach this? And so you say, it's God's word, not man's opinion. And so in the middle of that, then as you get going, you're going to find that this enables you to thrive. That's the middle contrast. You're like a tree. You're not like chaff. And as then that progresses, and as the end of your life occurs, guess what? How do you finish? You finished rewarded. Because God's been watching over you, not ruined. So you can see these contrasts, not only individually, but you can see them sequentially. And this is the way to live life. Rooted in God's word, with his um, word on every issue as our guide, that's our North Star, and then trusting him that he will then root us and ground us and bear fruit within us and watch over us and bring us all the way safely home. Now, as we think about these contrasts, whether sequentially or whether individually, I want you to notice an in intriguing element. 
there's only one action in all of them. There's only one action in all six verses. And that's in verse 2. Look at it with me. In fact, will you read it with me? His delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. There are other B statements. There are other resulting statements. There are other things that could show an equation, things happening. But there is really only one statement about what the person on the way of the righteous is to do. And it's this right here. Delight in the Lord's instruction. Meditate on it day and night. You see, everything flows into this verse and everything flows out of this 15-word summary of the blessed person's lifestyle. This is the one key action of the blessed person. Now, you may say to me, well, Todd, there's other things we're to obey, other things we're to do. You're right, but I would contend that we wouldn't know what those were if we weren't in the Lord's instruction. If our nose wasn't in the book, we wouldn't know what else there is to do and, 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 and seek after and pursue. It all starts with a commitment to God's Word being our North Star. This is what we live by. So I think we can definitely say our take-home truth today is simply this. A rooted, rewarding life is the result of attention to God's Word, not man's opinion. It's not by putting our finger up in the wind and seeing which way the wicked are going, the scorners or the mockers. We're not trying to detect horizontally who says I'm in and or out. The key is to find out where God is, put our nose in His Word and, and read His book, His law, and say that's where I'm going to stay and that's where I'm going to stand. That's where the rooted, rewarded life is. Now, I want to remind you of something. Here's what I did not say in that take-home truth. Here's what the psalmist did not say. That this is the way to an easy life. A rooted, rewarding life may not be a comfortable life. It may not be an easy life. It may not be a persecution-free life. It may not be a life void of suffering. So don't hear what I'm not saying this morning. The psalmist is simply saying, if you want to be like a tree, deep roots and healthy fruit, not worried about what people say or think about you, and guaranteed that God's faithfulness will watch over all of your life and bring you safely home, then here's the one key action you ought to take. Delight in the Lord's instruction. Meditate on God's word day and night. As you think about this take-home truth, will you also think about the various areas of your life for a moment? Marriage, parenting, finances, time investment, work habits, spiritual beliefs, cultural issues, friendships, leadership. Think about various issues. Ask yourself these questions. Who sets the course of your life in those areas? From whom do you take your cues? Is it God's word or man's opinion? Is the culture the counsel in your ears or is the Bible the voice you're heeding? 
And listen, friend, the eternal trajectory of your life and the current state of your soul's satisfaction is hinged to your answer to those questions. I would pastorally plead with you, don't turn a deaf ear to God's word. It's the one thing to root your life in. And so this is the one thing that will have the greatest impact in every other area of your life. It is your attention to God's word. That's the one thing you could do this year that could affect every other area of your life is give attention to God's word. So let's take the take-home truth and let's turn it to a take-home action. We're landing the plane. Let's kind of wrap this up. Here's our take-home action, can we? I will root my life in God's word, not man's opinion. Say it with me. I will root my life in God's word, not man's opinion. And the word roots on purpose. I'm not looking for a little surface action here, okay? I mean, get a spade out, get a shovel out. Let's plant some stuff. Let's invest some time. Let's invest some energy. Let's plant our life in God's word. What you're going to find is an increase in courage to face whatever comes your way in 2023. Whatever decision you've got to make in the next 12 months, whatever action you've got to take in the next 12 months, I guarantee you the courage for that decision, the courage for that action will be found and related to your willingness and commitment to plant your life in God's Word. In fact, let me just share with you what I found personally helpful and also insightful from watching church life for 35 years or more. A lot of people say, well, I just don't know what to do, Todd. And I didn't think this early on, but over the last probably 15 years, I don't really think that's true most of the time. If you come to me and say, Todd, I'm not sure what to do, I'll probably challenge you first. Like, really? You don't know what to do. And this, you don't know what to do. Really? I'll push you hard. Because I think most people struggle with courage, not knowledge. I found it true in my own life. I typically know what I should do. I'm just too stinking afraid to do it. I'd venture to say you're similar. You don't have a knowledge issue. Most of you have a courage issue. And here's what I found. That establishing a commitment to God's word before the decision comes supplies me with courage I didn't know I had. Because what we're really doing, if we say, well, when I find out what God says, I, you know, I, I think I'll do it. What we're really saying is, I want to I debate if I want to do that or not. Like, it, it's, it's, a, it's a coward's way out. Now, let me explain this to you militarily. We've got some military guys in the room. I think I'm right on this. On the beaches of Normandy, there was not a man on that boat who could charge those shores who had already decided he would die that day. We could use more recent illustrations, I'm sure, but from what I've been told and read in several books, soldiers in those intense moments of life or death decide before they get there, I'm a dead man. And it breeds a kind of courage to charge into the battle because now you're not worried. You've already decided you're doing it. And you're not even sure yet what the outcome is or what the hill looks like. I think the same principle is true spiritually. 
Let's decide. This year, it's what God says, period. I've heard this statement before. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Actually, God said it. That settles it. Are you with me? So let's make a commitment. God, your word guides my life in every issue, in every decision, every action. I'm in. And then when the next hard decision comes, you've already decided you're going to find a burst of courage to do that. I'm not saying it won't be hard. It still could be difficult, but it won't be debated. Hallelujah. That comes from a commitment to root your life in God's word, to meditate, to delight in the Lord's instruction. To help you with some next steps, let me just share two or three things you can do as you leave today. If you have not already accessed our church-wide Bible reading plan, uh, it's in your new journal. You can scan the QR code there. You can go by Connect Center and grab a hard copy. For some who just want actual hard copy, we have them there. Go to our website. You can uh, see it there. And you can follow along with our entire church as we read through the Bible this year. It's an excellent plan. It's not the only plan, though. Perhaps you'll want to utilize the Bible reading generator plan. This is one Jew and I use. We really like it. It's the Bible reading plan generator. And you can just search that term. I don't know the link, but if you'll search that term, you'll be uh, taken to a page where you input your parameters. Um, which parts of the Bible you want to read. Uh, and then it will select, you know, daily, uh, five days, six days, seven days, whatever. And other things, you'd include a proverb or a psalm. But anyway, you can just set your parameters and then you... Uh, it, it kind of um, spits out onto your iCal what you read each day. And so we've really enjoyed this. Uh, two years ago, we read all the historical prophets, um, the Old Testament prophets, just that segment only. So we kind of designed for us which to read every day to get through with all the Old Testament prophets in one year. It was, it was a lot of fun. Last year, we read the New Testament chronologically. And it was fun to see where the epistles would fit in Acts. And so it just kind of did it for us automatically. Love that program, right? And so two nights ago, we finished Revelation, and so we're thinking, what about next year? And so we're going to read Joshua through Esther this year as a family, as a couple. Uh, we're just kind of curious about some Old Testament history things within the nation of Israel. And so we put that in and spit out what to read each day to finish by the end of December, Joshua through Esther. That'll be along with other things we do. So just keep in mind there's other plans. Maybe you want to follow along with my preaching. Uh, we're going to be covering several books of the Bible. Maybe you just want to read those books of the Bible as I preach through them. Uh, next week, we begin 1 Timothy for four weeks in kind of an overview of things important to the church. Then we'll jump to eight psalms of lament. Then the bulk of our year will be in Philippians as we look at partnership and gospel progress. We'll have some time in Job. So maybe you're saying, Todd, wherever you're preaching from, I'm just going to read that book over and over. That'd be a great plan. Here's my point. I'm somewhat concerned with how you read the Bible, yes, but I'm mostly concerned that you read it. Are you with me? Let's just read the Bible. Man, it's the one action that will most affect every single area of your life. So church, I'm just exhorting you today. Will you join me in reading the Bible at least five times a week for 2023? So that your life is, watch this now, sourced, rooted, stable, vibrant, and secure, both now and eternally. I didn't say easy. I didn't say comfortable. 
whatever comes your way, you want to have your feet planted right here. Let's root our life in God's Word. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? As our worship band joins me, I want to end by asking you to say a prayer with me. You already know the prayer. So with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I'm going to ask you to say this prayer with me. And in fact, I'm going to ask you to sing it with me. You're probably thinking, Todd, where in the world are we going? Well, can you, um, for most of you, can we just go back to some old days? And if you've never heard this little chorus, um, you'll learn it in one time. I'm going to make you feel like you're three again, okay? But here's the prayer I want you to pray with me as we close. The B-I-B-L-E Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Now, some of you are chuckling. I love that about you. You're smirking. That's good. I was laughing, too. I talked to Taylor this week. Taylor, can we work that song in? We didn't, but yet we did. We both chuckled. and That actually is the prayer we want to pray. That's the book for me. I'm, I'm sure a five-year-old theologian wrote that song. I stand alone. I'm not worried about the way of the wicked, the pathway of sinners, or the crowd of the mockers. I stand alone on the Word of God, the Bible. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, will you say it and sing it with me as our final prayer? The B-I-B-L-E Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God. The B-I-B-L-E